This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Wednesday, February 21st, 2018. I'm Caleb Brown. What makes a district gerrymandered, and who gets to decide? Do state legislatures really hold all the power here? Walter Olson, a senior fellow at the Cato Institute, says Congress has some power, but it's never been used. The Supreme Court takes up gerrymandering this term. How often does the Supreme Court get a gerrymandering case, and what is the typical result when that when the court deals with gerrymandering as an issue? Every so often, uh, a case is brought to the Supreme Court urging them to develop a constitutional remedy for partisan gerrymandering. This has happened a couple of times in the past. The last one was uh, Vieth versus Jubilur. Um, uh, what was it? 11 years ago, I've lost count. And uh, because the Supreme Court has been closely divided on this with Anthony Kennedy, the swing vote, I know that sounds so unusual for Anthony Kennedy to be the swing vote, but uh, these cases have come down to uh, a close split between the liberal and conservative wings in which the liberal wing would like to announce a uh, constitutional standard saying that courts um, hereby are authorized to intervene and correct partisan gerrymanders. And the conservatives, after sort of playing along with the possibility for a while, uh, Justice the late Justice Scalia said in uh, the last round in, in Vieth, uh, no, we've been trying for a while. There isn't something that's clear enough and that's justiciable enough. That's the term of art for courts can administer it and, and it won't turn into a big mess. Um, there's nothing justiciable enough that's going to work. We should just give up officially and say that the Constitution um, uh, does not work to provide a remedy. And in the, right in the middle is Anthony Kennedy who wrote a separate opinion saying, uh, no, uh, I wouldn't close the door on there being a constitutional uh, remedy, but in this case, there is none. Okay, and that's happened multiple times? Well, at least that's the way the last one went, and the court has been divided. It doesn't hear these cases on partisan gerrymandering very often because it was such a clear deadlock. On racial gerrymandering issues, it hears them often, but that's a different section of law. Okay, so what does the Constitution tell us about the drawing of legislative districts? It is sparse in its uh, (coughs) prescriptions. It uh, makes clear that there needs to be uh, periodic census uh, uh, revisions. For one thing, those affect how many representatives each state gets, which uh, will automatically call for some reapportionment. And in practice, it's accepted that uh, with the jurisprudence of the 1960s especially, uh, there is a constitutional remedy if they don't make districts within a state of equal population size. The Uh, surprising omission is even though the Constitution has some language giving Congress explicitly the power to prescribe standards by which states um, uh, have to um, hold congressional elections, that power has been unused. Congress pretty clearly has some power here to step in and do a national law, a statute, not a constitutional uh, provision, um, uh, giving states some marching orders here. And it's curious that Congress has never used that power, at least not in, in memory. And you would argue that that is yet again a partisan deadlock. It is a partisan deadlock because for the various reasons, the uh, side that 
uh, crusades against gerrymandering, and of course I agree with a lot of their critique of, of what a bad practice it is, uh, has focused on getting the Supreme Court to change its mind. It's tantalizingly close from their point of view. Uh, if they get that, then they've got a permanent victory and uh, uh, have solved the problem from their point of view. Uh, the Republicans these days, although it has not always been so, uh, see their self-interest as bound up in the short term with not tampering with the Baroque and extreme gerrymanders that exist in many states, um, more more by Republicans than by Democrats. And so the Republicans have been very, very quiet about using their majority to uh, impose standards on the states. All right. So what are we likely to see here? There are two cases that are before the Supreme Court. One is in Maryland and the other is in Wisconsin. And the Supreme Court uh, is really rather crafty about the way that it takes these issues and uh, the timing. And let me start with the fact that it's got two cases, not just one. Wisconsin was a Republican gerrymander and Maryland was a Democratic one. And this way the court comes out a little more visibly uh, politically impartial in that whatever it prescribes for uh, the goose in the one case is probably going to be applied to the gander in the other case. And it demonstrates by taking one from each party that this is a bipartisan, for better or worse, both parties do this when they can. And a remedy, if there is a remedy, uh, will restrict both parties. So the particular details from uh, the two cases, however, are somewhat different. The legal theories are somewhat different and that gives the court uh, more options. The uh, Wisconsin case uh, uh, rests heavily on uh, a couple of the theories favored by many liberal litigants. It's got this efficiency gap test, which is, uh, depending on how you see it, it's either you know, the best quantitative advance that has been made in a while or it's a, a gimmicky thing that they came up with for litigation, as the Republicans would call it. Uh, the Maryland one has, uh, in some ways, a better targeting to Anthony Kennedy's past statements because Kennedy has uh, repeatedly expressed interest in one of the theories for why uh, gerrymandering might be unconstitutional. And you, know, you could look at uh, several different clauses of the Constitution, uh, everything from the Republican form of government clause, which is seldom used by the courts for anything, uh, on to various others. But the one that Kennedy has expressed interest in is First Amendment retaliation. And this needs a bit of explanation because it's not necessarily obvious. Um, it, that does not mean that you have a First Amendment right to elect someone from your party, which might be the mistaken way of thinking that there was a First Amendment involvement here. Uh, everyone knows, including Kennedy, that there is no direct First Amendment right to have anyone you agree with representing you. Uh, instead, First Amendment retaliation is the idea that uh, a government power which otherwise would be uh, innocuous or constitutional to exercise becomes uh, potentially a constitutional violation when the motivation is uh, in order to punish someone for speech or uh, assembly or religion or something else covered by the First Amendment. Example, uh, the government can ticket you for driving with one of your headlights out, but if the government uh, lies in wait in front of uh, only the houses of people who voted against the mayor and uh, only tickets them uh, for something that everyone was doing um, without revoking the fact that the government can ticket you for driving with your headlight out, uh, you've got a case of First Amendment re retaliation because the law has been twisted in order to punish people who didn't vote for the mayor. And that's what's going on in this case. The uh, If you accept that that theory and that the Maryland case has been developed on 
the idea that um, uh, uh, gerrymandering was used in order to punish portions of the state of Maryland that had been voting for Republicans because uh, they had done that. And uh, so uh, again, it's a uh, as, as are all of the other theories inviting the court into this area, um, it is potentially multi-sided. Uh, uh, the courts, if they, if they accepted that, could begin jumping in and fixing other things that are also done. Uh, so no one is quite sure where it will stop. But uh, that is uh, – it was enough to convince the um, – uh, the panel that heard the Maryland case, just as the uh, the other set of theories were uh, pre prevailed at the uh, intermediate level in the in the Wisconsin case. Now, let me say a word about timing because people are on the edge of their chairs wondering whether a decision in these cases, which should come by June, and traditionally the the court saves its more controversial cases for later in the term, will this turn this year's political calendar on its head? And uh, I think we can intuit a little about the court's thinking from this calendar issue because uh, very, very shortly – uh, in March, uh, uh, they need to finalize various ballots uh, because the calendar is now controlled by things like having to send out absentee ballots to military voters. And at that point, of course, you have to have a set um, list of candidates and you can't change it afterward. And yet the court has not uh, uh, scheduled oral argument for the Maryland case until uh, way into the month of March. It's already heard oral argument on the Wisconsin case. Now, putting on my Sherlock Holmes um, houndstooth um, cap, I deduce that the court uh, doesn't see itself as being in a great hurry either because uh, internal discussions uh, indicate that they're not going to announce a blockbuster case or because they realize at some level that if they announce a blockbuster case, they will do so in a prospective way saying uh, none of this is going to apply to this year's political calendar. Uh, we realize that everyone has to be given some time to adjust. So come back to us and we'll start handing down real decisions next year. What has been the price that we've paid for gerrymandering in terms of polarization in Congress? A very interesting question is how much polarization we get from this. And I warn people, don't assume that it's all that much because if you look at non-gerrymandered races, whether it be races for the U.S. Senate, where of course the lines do not change, uh, or uh, uh, races in states that are generally acknowledged to have fairly fair districting, uh, you find that the lawmakers elected from those states are polarized too. Uh, so more is going on with polarization than just that. On the other hand, I think that that's a contributing factor. And certainly uh, when I look at state maps, I see that uh, the um, – particularly – the way that the minority, is party uh, the minority party is handled, the Democrats in the states where the Republicans get gerrymandered, the Republicans in states like Maryland, um, they pack so many of the base voters of the underdog party into single districts that those uh, districts then become kind of ferociously ideological. At, at that point, winning the primary means that you've got to move way to the left or made, way to the right. And so the – Democratic lawmakers that you get in some of these Republican states, they're not these centrist Democrats who then might you know, plausibly run for governor. Instead, they've been selected in a, a Democratic primaries in such a way that their views are totally out of sync with uh, you know, the, the middle of North Carolina or Texas. I'm not trying to pick on those Democrats in those two states. but, but um, So you wind up with an effect – on state politics in some ways that may be greater than the effect on national politics, which is that you've um, – uh, you, you have uh, 
let them uh, determine what kind of minority party they want to have and in some ways given them the luxury of making their minority party more extreme and thus more unelectable. Is there a state in your view that has produced guidance for the purposes of redistricting that you think, oh, these these folks got it right? Well, there's been a lot of reform in uh, the last decade or two, uh, especially out west where most of the uh, 12 or 13 states uh, that have passed ambitious reform are. are. And uh, I like some of the uh, constitutional provisions and of course if you put it in a state constitution, you give the courts much more to go with in striking down uh, when it inevitably is subverted or corrupted by some bad person 20 years from now. The, you know, the courts can strike it down. Colorado puts a test of compactness right into its constitution. Um, compactness is something where you can uh, give the courts strong standards to work with and you can get them to strike down bad plans and if they're doing that, then the lawmakers behave better in the first place. Um, so you've got those things. There's a lot to praise about the Iowa system. Iowa goes off and does it its own way, but uh, one of the things that I especially like, there may be another state or two that also does it this way, is uh, Iowa not only um, respects county lines, but it, it blinds the districters to uh, partisan information, including not just, I believe, voter registration statistics and, and past voter history as to where the Democrats are and where the Republicans are. It also blinds them as to the residence of incumbent lawmakers. Uh, and that is a badge of seriousness about really being independent of the politicians' interests because if there's anything that the lawmakers don't want them to be blind about is, is, is they say, look, I'm, I'm popular. Please draw, you know, draw a district around me consisting entirely of neighborhoods that know and like me. Um, well, in Iowa, they – Or don't redraw the line <laughs> so my house is over here instead in, yes. in this Which district and not in, that district. In Maryland, the state that I'm most familiar with, this was constantly used. Little fingers of land were used um, like – um, you know, octopus tentacles, um, and at the end of that tentacle would be the home of someone who uh, uh, would have preferred a district or, around them, but is being stuck into a district uh, uh, for for the majority's convenience. And so they, uh, the result of the Iowa system was, uh, for example, to throw three popular lawmakers into the same district, uh, and uh, and they griped. But as I understand it. Uh, there's been a lot of legitimacy, a lot of public confidence. Uh, now, you know, I not every state can be like Iowa. I was fairly div closely divided politically, and is considered one of these good government states where people don't abuse powers given to them. You know, the, a, a Midwestern tradition that you know, cannot be prescribed for every single other state as as, as readily, but. Uh, in Iowa, at least, it's worked. In a, in a bunch of Rocky Mountain states, you've got, um, uh, I think, significantly. Um, good starts at reform. And there's no reason this can't come east. Ohio has been uh, struggling its way toward a better system. Uh, hundreds of thousands of uh, signatures are on um, uh, a, a ballot measure for Michigan to follow. New, New Jersey of all states, and believe me, if New Jersey can reform, uh, there's uh, there's hope for almost any place. Uh, New Jersey has a system that has been praised by political scientists uh, involving baseball arbitration in which the 
uh, Democrats and Republicans are invited to submit plans and then the uh, neutral has to pick whichever of the two plans seems fairer, which I mean, you see the game theory here. They, there's reason not to be too outrageous. I if cut, they, you pick. <laughs> yeah. And so, you know, game theory can help. Uh, believe it or not, public map, map submission has a very important role to play because you can put all this data uh, in uh, publicly readable form and then with a 25 or $50 um, computer program, everyone can play. Everyone can submit maps. This happens in Arizona, for example, where uh, there's been very extensive reform. And those maps, and I'll I'll stop here with my favorite anecdote from the whole area, that the maps can serve as grounds for judicial review. And in, and in one of the rounds in Pennsylvania, uh, the state legislature had done some predictably horrendous map. And because they had public map submission, um, the state Supreme Court was able to say that the legislator's own map was clearly inferior to a map submitted by a piano teacher from Allentown. And they said, unless you can at least do a map as, as good as hers, uh, you violated the Constitution. Out with it. Walter Olson is a senior fellow at the Cato Institute. Subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast at iTunes and Google Play. And follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast. <laughs>